Hello, I'm Connor Sweetman and welcome to InsureTech Radio, the podcast that teaches you about how technology is transforming insurance and about the people making it happen. InsureTech Radio is part of InsureTech Ireland, so if you want to support the podcast, sign up to our newsletter by visiting insuretechireland.org. This week, my guest is Paul Carroll. Paul spent 17 years as a reporter and editor at the Wall Street Journal. He was twice nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and he was a finalist once in 1996. These days, he's the editor-in-chief at Insurance Thought Leadership, an online publication that champions transformation and change in insurance and risk management. Paul and I have a really wide-ranging conversation. We chat about Paul's book with a great title. It's called Billion Dollar Lessons, What You Can Learn from the Most Inexcusable Business Failures of the Last 25 Years. And we have a great chat about that and some of the lessons that we can draw out and learn from and apply in our world in insurance. On top of that, we also talk about Amazon, Munich Re, and the future of fax machines. Please enjoy. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast, Paul. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. So how did Insurance Thought Leadership get started? So it started with a fellow named Dave Diaz, who, as far as I can tell, knows everybody in insurance. Uh, LinkedIn actually cut him off when he hit 30,000 first degree connections, and that was many years ago now. He just had decided that there needed to be a way to get big ideas out there. And once he started doing this on his own, a bunch of friends rallied around him. He and I then met about seven years ago. And given my background with technology and my background in publishing, he asked if I would come on board. Uh, I was intrigued. I sort of feel like I've watched the same movie for going on 35 years now since I started covering IBM for the Wall Street Journal. I've seen disruption happened there and then in the rest of the computer industry and then with the internet uh, through the rest of the world and had decided that there were really four areas that had yet to be turned upside down by technology, government, healthcare, higher education, and insurance. So when Dave came along with this nascent website that was devoted to bringing big ideas to insurance, I thought, sign me up. Let's see what we can do. And what are some of the stories that have really stood out to you since you started with insurance thought leadership? Well, I've been struck recently by how much the digitization is accelerating. I'm not a fan of Lennon and rarely quote him, but he once said something that I think is smart, which is that there are sometimes decades go by where nothing happens. And then there are months that go by where decades happen. And I I think given what's happening with the virus, that we're in a stage where not decades, but years are happening pretty quickly. I I just think uh, consumer willingness to, to deal with stuff over the phone and so forth is increasing and insurance companies are starting to adapt to that. So I, I think that's a uh, fundamental change. I've been on a, a tear for a while about burn the fax machines. What do you have against fax machines? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're just remarkably inefficient and outdated. It, it's kind of interesting now that I've been at this for a while. I can look back at some stories that uh, I wrote and see how long it's actually taken for things to play out. So I, I wrote a story for the Wall Street Journal in, I think, 1991, in which I talked about online forms. At that point, it was really before the internet had spread much, but they were still a really efficient way of doing things. Because if you think about it, if I'm filling out a form and faxing it to you 
I'm doing my scrawled handwriting and then I have to put this thing in a machine, send it to you, it prints out. Then you have to take that piece of paper and you have to key the information in. Well, you probably can't read my handwriting because it's not very good. So you're not only taking time, but you're also then introducing errors that either have to get fixed down the line or wind up causing problems. Whereas if you just put a screen in front of me and I have to type something in, I'm not going to make mistakes in how to spell my name or what my address is or whatever. And I'm going to do the work that you won't then have to do. There also won't be a lag between the time that I type the information in and the time it shows up in your database, whereas there is if you have to deal with this. I was struck yesterday. I read a piece in the New York Times about how fax machines are causing real problems in the way the U.S. is handling the pandemic because somebody will, was in a Houston hospital came in and found that there were just hundreds of sheets of paper all over the floor because somebody had faxed them a few files the night before, and each of the files had hundreds of pages in it. In Washington state, they've actually had to bring in the National Guard to help with all the inputting of data that they have to do because of all the faxes they're getting. And I suppose when you wrote about that in the early 90s, that article at the time probably would have seemed quite, oh, this guy's crazy, you know, we're never going to get rid of fax machines. What do you think is the thing now that we take for granted that will just go away and in a generation's time, people will be saying, oh, I can't believe those idiots still use email or whatever. Well, yeah, there's a fair amount of that. I think that call centers will not entirely go away, but will mostly go away. You know, you'll have chatbots telling you when your next payment is due and so forth. And you'll actually have much more experienced people who will be dealing with the, the real problems that aren't just uh, at that sort of level of detail. To me, the big thing is just the inefficiency in the industry. There's just a massive amount of overhead that I think has to go away. When I was doing one of these ghostwriting projects that I wound up doing with some folks at McKinsey, they argue that 50% of the overhead in insurance needs to go away over the next five years. And I think they're probably right. If you look at it, people complain a lot about how people are underinsured. Well, that's true. But if I'm paying a dollar of premium and only getting 60 cents back in general on property casualty insurance of one sort or another, I'd do better on a slot machine at Las Vegas. And if you can take out 50% of those operating costs and suddenly I get 80% back, 80 cents on the dollar, then I'm going to be much more inclined to buy insurance than I would be at the moment. You wrote a book, Billion Dollar Lessons, a couple of years ago. I was hoping to explore. What was your idea for the book? You bet. Always love to talk about that book. So the idea came about in the mid-2000s. Jim Collins at that point was just churning out these books that were selling like crazy. And they were based on extensive research into success stories. He would then boil things down and say, all right, here are the lessons. If you want to be the... Like the success stories, you have to get the right people on the bus and you have to have level five leaders and you have a bunch of these things that have passed into the, the language. And in my experience with the Wall Street Journal, I had not just seen successes, I had also seen failures. So when I started covering IBM back in 1986, the rule of thumb in the computer industry was that IBM accounted for half the revenue, two thirds of the profits and three quarters of the market value. 
which if you think about it in today's term, is just extraordinary. I mean, it, it would basically be uh, Apple, Facebook, Intel, Microsoft, and three or four other companies rolled into one to get to that kind of level of dominance that IBM had in those days. Well, then by the time I stopped covering IBM in 1993, IBM was falling apart. So it became clear to me that trees don't always grow to the sky. Problems can happen. Well, then I went to Mexico City as the bureau chief of the journal. Mexico was the darling of the developing world in those days. When I left two and a half years later, it had devalued the currency, was on the verge of bankruptcy, and the U.S. had to get involved to, to bail out Mexico to prevent the contagion from spreading through Latin America and then to the U.S. and then to the rest of the world economy. So actually, I became known at the Wall Street Journal as Dr. Death. So anyway, it's been seven years now, so uh, I, I, I think insurance is safe. But uh, anyway, it's a long way of saying that um, I looked at the Jim Collins stuff and thought, well, all right, that's interesting research. What has been done about failures? And the answer was nothing. And we looked at 2,500 failures to distill the lessons and told people, all right, here's how not to be like those guys. So how, very long answer to your question. Failure? Did they have to file bankruptcy or did it have to be public companies? or how did you... So we started with a list of uh, the biggest write-offs. And then we boil it down to about 750 and really took a harder look at those and then narrowed it down. We found, for what it's worth, that in almost half the cases, the strategy that led to the major write-off was obviously stupid and should have been stopped ahead of time. What was the example with Avon? So Avon was another one that was one of my favorites. Um they I actually don't know how worldwide they are, but certainly in the U.S., they would sell a lot of cosmetics door to door. And they decided that they weren't really about their sales force. They were about a culture of caring. So if they were a culture of caring, well, they got into medical equipment and retirement homes. Well, it turns out that selling cosmetics doesn't help you a lot with either of those things. And within a couple of years, they took a massive write-off and got rid of those outfits. The biggest lesson that came out of the book was something we call the devil's advocate. Because as I say, it, it, it turns out that about half of these strategies should have been diagnosed as brain dead ahead of time. And we've learned that if you go in and just create an environment in which people can express their concerns, then you can get those objections on the table. So, so basically, you don't go in and say, all right, the CEO thinks it'd be a great idea to do autonomous vehicles. Is that a good idea or not? Well, everybody's going to say it's a good idea because everybody's influenced by the CEO. But if you say, let's set aside this issue for the moment of whether it's a good idea or not, let's just look for all the problems. Then people get started talking and they feed off each other. And pretty soon you have a robust understanding of the potential problems, then you can go back to the CEO and say, just so you know, here are the things that might go wrong. And people will often take a look at that and say, oh, yeah, that's actually more of a, an issue than I thought. Let's scale back. I mentioned autonomous cars because my co-author and I wound up doing some work with a major uh, auto company, and it was being way too optimistic three years ago on the future of, of autonomous cars and we and presumably some other folks who were involved in other parts of the organization got them to greatly scale back their their expectations. 
And is there a danger that having that process in place could actually stifle innovation? Are you in danger of setting up a bureaucracy? Oh, possibly. Is in particular a danger of someone getting to be known as the no person. So if there's one person who's always saying, dumb idea, dumb idea, dumb idea, then that person loses credibility. So we recommend that the role be assigned so that, you know, today Connor is the no person, tomorrow I am or whatever, so that nobody gets identified that way. We don't recommend changing the approval process. So it's still up to the CEO whether to say yes or no. If you position this just as fact-finding, it's more palatable to an organization. And and when we talk about the devil's advocate, literally with this massive car company, it was just Chunk of me and one other guy who had some subject matter expertise who went in and did this. And we worked there for six months and then we were gone. So it, it's not like this has to be a permanent bureaucracy. It just has to be a, a thing that's done relatively briefly before a major decision is made. When we just look at successes, though, like who would be some of the, the companies that have got it right, in your opinion? In a general sense, I would say Amazon is the one that's gotten it most right because they have consistently innovated and they've consistently tested. So they do things small and then go from there. I mean, people seem to have forgotten it. Bezos's vision for Amazon from the very beginning was what he called the everything store. And books were just the way to start. So he, he picked something that was very manageable, that was shippable, that worked via the internet, and then built on that. Uh, in terms of insurance, I have always liked what Munich Re is doing. I think they've been very innovative and have found some interesting companies to back. I think that in general, the reinsurers are in a very good space because uh, to back up for just a second, the way I look at an, an industry is what it gets stripped down to when you digitize it. So you look at the history of uh, photography and initially there were a lot of, for you know, a hundred and some years, there were a lot of things that happened in terms of shrinking the camera. But then once you got to the point where the camera became part of the phone, then it was fully digitized and you didn't have to have the big old camera. You didn't have to have the film. You didn't have to have the chemicals to process the film. You didn't have to have the paper to print the film. You just had the image. And then at that point, Kodak pretty much went away and all the value shifted to Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all these other apps that use the, the photographic capability. Well, if you strip insurance down to its essence, what you have is a customer slash contract. You have a yes, no mechanism to decide whether payment is warranted and you have money. And that's it. A customer, yes, no money. And I think the reinsurers are in a good space because they have the money and they don't have the traditional broker agent channels that are keeping some of the traditional insurers from innovating as fast as they like. So I, I think the, the reinsurers have a lot of opportunity and I think uh, uh, Munich Re has done a, an especially good job at uh, explaining that. It's something I've been reflecting on myself over the last while and you know, having worked for insurers for the last decade or so, I've begun to think how much, even though as insurers, we describe ourselves as primary risk carriers, but in, in fact, we are as, insur as primary insurers, we are actually intermediaries of capacity. So the capacity providers are the reinsurers. It probably actually goes back further than that, really. 
And uh, we are just another link in that chain. And any link, I think, is vulnerable unless you establish what value you're providing to the overall value chain. Oh, I agree. And, and I, I think there will be a lot of value provided by agents and brokers. It just won't be the sort of processing value that's provided today. You know, taking that fax and turning it into something that becomes a policy, it'll be much more advisory. So I, I think that the future is actually bright for the really good agents, brokers, uh, and I think they'll get paid a whole lot more money than they do at the moment. Uh, they'll just have to keep moving up the food chain so that what they're providing is uh, of real value and they aren't being what Tom Wilson, the CEO of Allstate, refers to as human modems. Thanks very much for joining us on InsureTech Radio. Where can people find out more about you and more about Insurance Thought Leadership? Insurance Thought Leadership is just that. It's insurancethoughtleadership.com. There are about 4,500 articles there that I've worked very hard to post over the last seven years. There are about 1,500 people who write for us. There's a newsletter called Six Things that I send out every week that's free that has some commentary by me on some recent topic related to innovation in insurance, and then has some articles from the prior week. And I'd encourage everybody to uh, sign up for that. Thank you, Paul. Uh, you bet. I was delighted to be here. Uh, always like hearing an Irish accent. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on LinkedIn. And please visit our website, insuretechireland.org. See you next week.